As you're being seated, go ahead and find your Bible, open it up, or uh, turn it on, and we'll be in Acts chapter 2 today. And as you're looking for Acts chapter 2, let me ask you this question. When did everything get so complicated? Uh, When did everything get so complicated? I remember the shock and awe that we experienced whenever we had our first child, and suddenly children were invading our home, and we were living with little ones, and, and suddenly just little things like going to the grocery store and getting out of the car became a complex problem to be solved. Some of you have done that, right? And then everything just got a lot more complicated, which is a little bit ironic because there's very few things in life that I enjoy more than watching childhood simplicity as a little one just discovers the world around, around them. There's just such a beauty in that young innocence. But we as human beings, we, we have a natural drift from simplicity to complexity. You see this through the natural life order. We start out in life with a certain amount of innocence, and then as we live life, it just seems as though everything gets more and more complicated. The early church actually dealt with a lot of complex problems. Frequently, whenever we think about the New Testament, we think of the early church, and we think, man, that was the perfect time. Everything was going well back during the early days of Christianity, but they actually dealt with some very complex problems. The church there in Jerusalem had a real struggle with racism. Whenever you go a little bit northwest, you find the churches that were in Galatia, they they struggled with false teaching. People came into the church that were teaching false doctrines, and then you continue west into the Greece states, and you find that in Corinth, they struggled a lot with the complex problems of their past and people bringing sinful behaviors into the church. But there was this season early on in the New Testament, right after the, the day of Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit of God was just upon the church. Everybody had unity, and it's a beautiful picture of what it's supposed to look like. What does it look like when the church together is truly pursuing God with abandonment of of spirit, just totally following God? So look with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. We're going to read verses 41 through 47. So those who accepted his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were added to them. Now, can you imagine that? 3,000 people joined the church on the same day. Talk about problems in the nursery, all right? You've got some issues right there when 3,000 people join the church in the same day. But the way that they joined the church is that they were new believers. And so they were new believers who then were baptized. Look at verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. And then fear came over everyone, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common, and they sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as anyone had a need. And every day... They devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple complex and broke bread from house to house. And they ate their food with a joyful and humble attitude, praising God and having favor with all the people. And every day, 
the Lord added to them those who were being saved. Now, we're in a series of messages that we have entitled The Spiritual Disciplines. And we're talking about how can you grow spiritually in 2019? What are some of the things that you need to do? What are some of the attitudes that we need to ask God to birth within us? You'll remember last week we talked about abiding in God's Word, and I pray that many of you every day throughout the course of the last week uh, pray, or took time to read the Bible and hear from God. You say, oh man, I did so well Monday through Tuesday, but I got off the wagon on Wednesday. Well, get back on the wagon today, okay? Uh, it's, it's, it's not a, like I say, it's not a, it's not a checkbox legal game. It's about knowing God and spending time with him. But today, I want you to notice some of the spiritual disciplines of this early church. And the first thing I want you to notice is that their story begins with people being saved. Now, there's a funny thing that happens when people are saved, that before they get saved, other people are telling them about how they can be saved. We call that in the church evangelism. And so you see that this early church was consumed with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and making sure that they were sharing the message of Jesus Christ with other people as well. You see, whenever you have experienced God's salvation, when you have been touched by grace, you do not want to hoard grace, but you want to share it. And so you want to communicate the message of hope to others as well because you find great joy in seeing people come alive in Christ. And this early church was busy sharing the message of Christ. Now let me ask you a question. How long has it been since you talked to somebody about their faith? How long has it been since you shared the gospel with somebody? Have you ever had that moment of being there when someone becomes a new Christian, when someone places their faith in Christ. I can tell you this, there is nothing more exhilarating than being there when someone comes alive in Christ. Secondly, you'll see about this early church that they were devoted. Now, specifically, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. And then verse 42 says that their beliefs were bringing them together. And when they would come together, they had a sweet fellowship that led them to take the Lord's Supper and to pray together. There are thousands of organizations in our country that do charitable work. I'm thankful for many of those organizations. They do good stuff. Our landscape around town is dotted with community centers, parks, country clubs, Those are places where people can come together and they can play and they can laugh and they can enjoy friendship. But sometimes we have to ask this question. What makes the church unique? And one of the big things that makes church unique is that we come together through a common faith. You see, the church has a common faith in Jesus Christ. And it is our devotion to Jesus that truly brings us together, and ultimately whenever we come together, though I love it whenever we laugh, I love it when you see friendships develop, I love it whenever we get to do interesting things together, but ultimately whenever we come together, our common belief in Jesus Christ leads us to want to minister, to want to worship the Lord together, to have a commonality of purpose 
as we serve the Lord together as a church. Thirdly, notice that they had a sense of awe. A sense of awe. You'll see that word awe throughout the passage. That word awe is closely linked to faith. They were expecting to experience God's power. They were expecting to see God do something that only God can do. I find that the drift towards the complex in the Christian life often leads us away from our sense of awe. It leads us away from our life of faith. Rather than trusting God, rather than expecting God to do only the things that God can do, we begin taking things into our own hands and we begin losing our sense of awe and replacing that sense of awe with a sense of apathy. But the Bible says that fear came over them because they were seeing God do miracles that only God can do. Lives were being changed. People were being healed. God was doing incredible miracles. Now, we're Baptists, so we don't talk about miracles, right? right, right. So, so, so we often miss that part of the story. But they had a sense of awe, and God was doing stuff only He can do. Now, fourth, they genuinely cared for each other to the point of sacrifice. Now, here's what you've got to do. You've got to get yourself in their sandals and realize that believing in Christ had drastically changed their lives. These were Jewish people who had believed in Christ, and because of that, some of them were now ostracized by their family. They may have lost their careers, lost their security. Life was hard for these new believers. So what did they do? They were willing to help each other to the point that they would sell their possessions and give to anyone who was in need. What an incredible example of discipline and and faithfulness and devotion to God and to one another. And then fifth, notice they were devoted to their community. The Bible says day after day they would meet in the temple complex. They would take the story of Jesus to the epicenter of Judaism and they would go into the temple complex. They had the favor of the people because people could see how they were living their life and they were taking what God was doing in their hearts They were taking that into the community. You see, church, I have a firm belief that the gospel transforms the heart. And when the gospel transforms the heart, it can transform your marriage. And when the gospel begins transforming your marriage, it can transform your family. And when families are transformed, that's when communities are transformed. That's when countries are transformed. It begins in the heart, but it's not supposed to just stay in the heart. It's to overflow the boundaries of our life and ultimately overflow the boundaries of ourselves and reach out into the community. Now, don't miss... Verse 46, it's easy to hydroplane right over it, but the scriptures say there that they ate their food with a joyful and humble attitude. They ate their food with a joyful and humble attitude. If you have a King James, it says they ate their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. If you have an NIV or a NASB, it says something along the lines of, they ate with glad and sincere hearts. That word that's translated attitude, it should be translated heart, actually, because it it comes cardia, it comes from the word heart. And literally, the etymology of these words mean that they were living life with simplicity of heart. Or 
smoothness of heart. Their heart wasn't complicated. They had a singleness of purpose. And what amazes me is that these early Christians were living in terrible circumstances. Now, sometimes it's easy to read a story like that and say, well, great, they had singleness and simplicity of heart, but you don't know my circumstances. These folks had horrible circumstances. They were living under Roman domination. If they ever got any extra money, it went to Rome. They also led with unbel- they lived life with unbelievably corrupt leaders. They were facing persecution every day of their lives. They struggled just to have enough food to eat, but their hearts were filled with praise to God and simplicity. Okay, so how about you? Do you enjoy simplicity of heart? When we, when we sing the songs a few minutes ago, did you find your heart filled with praise? When we look at the Scriptures, is there a simplicity of heart that the Scriptures just speak deeply to your soul? Or, or has it somewhere along the line just gotten really complicated? So that it's hard for you to feel. It's hard for you to get in touch with faith. It's hard for you to really feel that just natural desire to praise the Lord and this natural thirst for righteousness. Simplicity of heart. It's actually one of the spiritual disciplines. Living life with a singleness of purpose. Now, simplicity of heart has some common enemies. The first one is covetousness. Now, you may remember in the Big Ten, the Ten Commandments, one of the Ten Commandments is, Thou shalt not covet. You say, well, what does it mean to covet? Coveting is whenever we want other people's stuff. Or we want other people's lives. Spiritually speaking, we are desiring things that God has not given to us. In our society, this often hits home whenever you visit Facebook. You see this family over here, and they're traveling to this nice place, and you see this beautiful family here, and you're like, man, they, everything looks perfect in their world. And it's easy for us to begin saying deep within our soul, must be nice, must be nice. Must be nice to be able to do that. Must be nice to be able to have that. And we start quietly coveting. And once your heart starts coveting other people's lives, other people's families, other people's uh, blessings, then Satan begins to move in and you start playing this comparison game. And you start wanting things that God has not given to you. And it's really easy for covetousness to lead to speculating, dreaming, and at times even becoming a very critical person. Everybody around you, everything that you see, you just have to tear down and criticize. And deep within you, there's a part of you that wants a lot of that. And because you don't have it, you just want to tear it down. Covetousness will lead to a complicated heart. It has a cousin. Covetousness cousin, that's a mouthful to say, is greed. Okay, so coveting is whenever I want somebody else's stuff or somebody else's life. Greed is whenever I am never satisfied with what I have. And so I begin living life with this unquenchable appetite. No matter what I get, it's not enough. I don't have any contentment. And so 
you, you work hard, you get a nice house, and you enjoy that for a couple of, year, a couple of years, and then a couple of years later, you're like, well, I need, I need another house. You, you stalk something on Amazon, you know? I mean, you're like, ah, it's got to go down in price. All right, it went down 10%, so now I feel good about making this expenditure. So you hit click, you buy it, you wait, you track it on UPS, and you're like, finally, it's here. You, you, you put it on, and, and you wear it or whatever it might be, and you're like, man, this is awesome. And then like a year later, you're giving it to Salvation Army, Right? Why? Because there's something else that you're stalking, and it's, it's part of it's kind of part of our natural human nature uh, to to be greedy and to, to not be satisfied. Because our spiritual nature leads us to contentment, our human nature leads us to be more and more greedy. Now, all this begins to lead us to pride, and at the root of sin is selfishness and pride. I wrote this in my journal a couple years ago, about pride. Pride elevates me to a position that rightfully belongs to God. Pride focuses on my needs and selfishly views God and others as existing to serve me. Pride's confusing. It shuffles my perspective And it causes me to embrace rational lies. I begin to see my arrogance as confidence. My superiority expresses itself in cynical humor. The right of pride leads me to a fictional world where I am all-knowing and everyone around me is trapped in foolishness. Pride draws me in with a new car smell and a soft ride. Pride drives fast and reckless. The law does not apply when I grip the wheel of pride. But in the end, the ride of pride leaves nothing more than a mangled, complicated mess of broken dreams, twisted relationships, and a cold soul. Covetousness, greed, and pride. They will drain your hearts of simplicity. They will cause you to lose that singleness of purpose. And they make everything complicated for you and for the people that you love the most. And when they become the calling cards of our life, when they take up residence in our soul, soon our lives become marked by moments of thrill These moments when our earthly appetites are temporarily satisfied, but then those moments fade and the thrill gives way. And we experience these lonely, empty moments where we just feel cold, lonely, living life in quiet desperation. And so we say to ourselves, I don't want that. I don't want that. It's too complicated. So I'll stop. The calendar flips over. It's 2019. So we say, hey, it's a new year. It's time to make some resolutions. So here's what I'm going to do. In 2019, I'm going to simplify. And so we try, start trying to simplify our lives. What can I simplify? All right. Well, I'm going to start with the pantry. 
There's things in there that were expired three years ago, okay? So we're going to toss that, okay? And we're going to simplify that. And, and then I'm going to simplify the freezer, and I'm going to go out there, and, you know, my ice cream now has that protective ice on it. So I'm going to throw that out, and I'm going to simplify there, and then I'm going to work on the house, I'm going to work on the yard, and I'm going to work on this and this and this, and I, I'm just going to simplify. But here's the question. How do you simplify your heart? Because that's usually where the core issue is. It's our heart that's gotten so complex. And so if you just decide, all right, I'm going to simplify the heart. Last year I've been preaching on this. I looked at the passage. Yeah, that's what I want. So, so if you just say, I'm just going to do it on my own, you're, you're not going to do it. And here's why. Because our hearts naturally drift from the simple to the complex. You see that in life. Left to our own, we drift towards pain rather than love. And that's why I love the gospel so much. I just love the story of the gospel because God cuts through our pain. He intervenes into our scene so that we might be redeemed. And He takes us from where we are to where we should be. I want to share with you a verse from 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 6. I really wish I could go through the passage that leads up to this verse because there's a lot of meat in the verses preceding it. But in verse 6 of 1 Timothy chapter 6, here's what the Bible says. But godliness with contentment is great gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Let's say that together on the count of three, okay? One, two, three. But godliness is great gain. If you desire contentment, if you desire simplicity of soul, of heart, it begins with one word. Godliness. Godliness. Simplicity of heart is found in simplicity of purpose. Let me say that again. Simplicity of heart is found in simplicity of purpose. And as a Christian, you can live with a singleness of purpose, and that is godliness. In all that I do, in all that I say, in the attitudes that I harbor, in the way that I treat other people, in the dreams that I chase, I desire but one thing, godliness. And so that becomes the singleness of purpose that is deep within my heart. I take that singleness of purpose into my marriage, into my parenting, into my career, perhaps into your classroom, into that hospital. Wherever you go, you're able to live with a singleness of purpose, a simplicity of heart that says, I ultimately desire one thing, and that is to honor God in everything. Godliness is the cure to covetousness. When you're pursuing God... You don't have to pursue everybody else's life. Godliness is the cure to greed. Whenever you are pursuing God, you find that there is a great sense of contentment in the relationship that you have with the Lord. When you pursue godliness above all else, the clouds begin to roll back and suddenly you can see. Suddenly all this complexity comes into focus and that's where that deep simplicity is found. We're in a month here where we are 
talking about international missions and supporting missionaries and trying to help take the gospel cross-culturally. And the mission offering that we participate in is called the Lottie Moon Mission Offering. December 12, 1840, in Albany County, Virginia, there was a little girl that was born by the name of Charlotte Diggs Moon. Her family welcomed her into the world, and they simply called her Lottie. Growing up, she resisted Jesus. She didn't have time for it. She was highly driven. She had an off-the-charts intelligence. And so she had a lot to do in life, and very quickly her life became rather complicated. Finally, at the age of 18, the Holy Spirit caught her. And she embraced Jesus as her Lord and Savior. She was baptized there in the church. She went to college. In 1861, at the age of 21, she became one of the first women in the southern United States to graduate with a master's degree. It was very unique back in that day and time. An incredible young person. About that time, the Civil War really began to escalate, and so she went home and she began teaching school. Eventually, she taught school in Kentucky, Georgia, and Virginia. When she was 32 years old in 1872, that's where she really began to discover her ultimate purpose. That God had called her and God had equipped her to be an individual that takes the gospel cross-culturally. And so she moved to the Shantung province of China. And there she took her classroom skills and she employed them in teaching young girls there in the community. And she became a missionary. She helped new churches get started. She shared the gospel. She met people at their point of need. She lived there for 39 years. Early on, she was completely rejected. People told her that she should go home. But Lottie began to discover that she needed to meet people at their point of need. And so she began changing her dress. She changed her language. She even changed some of her customs and adopted their customs. She also learned the power of cookies. Cookies have an incredible power. And so she would bake cookies, and she would place them out where people would smell them, and then they would come by the house. You've got to think, you know, rural little community there in China, and people would come by the house, and she would give them cookies, and then she would talk to them about their soul. She fell in love once. Brilliant man professor at Southern Seminary, had all sorts of potential, all sorts of ability. But then his intellect began getting away from him, and he eventually began abandoning the truth of Scripture and following after the secular truths of humanism. And so she broke up with him. She wrote him a letter and told him how she loved him dearly, but she could not marry him because if she were to bring him to China, he would confuse her work and he would take her away from her calling. She also told him that she would never marry another because ultimately she loved him. In the physical world, she really had nothing. She once wrote a letter back home to the mission board and she said this, Please say to the new missionaries, they are coming to a life of hardship, responsibility, and constant self-denial. She believed in the simplicity of godliness. 
And that's what she lived her life for. She fully believed she had a divine mission from God to serve him. And so she once wrote, I, have, I love this quote, I have a firm conviction that I am immortal until my work is done. When you have a firm conviction that God has called you to something, you also have a firm conviction He's not going to call you home until that work is done. She wrote, in, she wrote one time, Why should we not do something that will prove that we are really earnest in claiming to be followers of Him who, though He was rich, for our sake, became poor? Lottie's an incredible example of what it means to live life with a simplicity of heart, a singleness of purpose. And my prayer for you today is that you will discover the power of simplicity. I'll confess to you, this was a hard sermon to put together. Because I want to, in a sermon like this, to be able to say, if you will do this, 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 and this, then you'll find this. But I can't do that with this subject. All I can do is say, here's what the church did in Acts chapter 2. And as they pursued God, and as they lived this way, they found that they had a simplicity of heart. All I can do is say, hey, the Bible says that if you will pursue godliness with contentment, then it will be great gain in your life. And challenge you to get rid of the clutter that's in your heart. To not live your life wanting somebody else's life. To not live your life with an unquenchable desire for more and more and more. But to ask God to give you a contentment and to pursue Him in everything. And to become that person that can honestly say to yourself, I just want to honor God. When I speak, when, when I treat people, when I, when I go into my career, whatever it is, I just want to honor God. Because I don't want this heart that's so cluttered by all this other stuff. I just want a heart. A heart that's discovered its purpose and honors my Lord in everything I do. Would you be so kind as to bow your heads with me, please, as we come to a time of commitment. The musicians are going to come and they'll lead us in singing. This is a time where you can pray. It's a time where you can sing. In a short while, we'll have a time to give. I'm up here at the front. My wife is here. If there's anything that we may pray with you about, it's always our joy to pray with you. It could even be that today is the day you need to take that initial step and become a Christian. We'd love to talk to you about what it means to be saved. Heavenly Father, we bow our heads before you, and I realize that some of us brought with us today hearts that are just filled with the complexities of life. And Father, deep down, we long for that simplicity. Father, we realize that we're not asking you to take away all the problems and that somehow everything will just vanish, all the problems will just vanish. We realize that in the world in which we live, there will be struggle. But we ask, Lord, that you might birth within us a singleness of purpose, a deep, deep joy that desires to pursue you in the midst of everything. 
I pray, Lord, that we might have uncluttered hearts that hear from you, that praise you, that follow you. Lord, help us to grow spiritually in 2019. And as we pursue godliness, may other people see in our lives the power of the Holy Spirit flowing. And may you use our lives and our testimony to draw others to you so that we might have the joy of seeing people come alive in Christ. Thank you, Father, for the truth that we've seen today. May it be lived out in our homes and communities. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.